right now, the way the industry is set up and the way it's always been set up is that facilities, prison facilities, typically outsource a lot of the functions of the jail or, or prison to third-party vendors. And the way that the third-party vendors is awarded contracts is based on which vendor promises the facility or the prison the highest kickback. Welcome, Getting There fans. I'm your host, Alejandro Garcia Maya. While incarcerated, inmates face an array of challenges that can influence their ability to rejoin society after release. Keeping prisoners connected to their families and loved ones outside of confinement is a necessity in reducing reincarceration. How do we keep imprisoned individuals connected to the outside world when all means of communication is expensive. On today's show, we have Frederick Hudson, founder of Pigeonly, an app that helps inmates deal with the extreme isolation of incarceration by making it affordable for inmates to stay connected with their families and loved ones. In this episode, Frederick and I talk about incarceration in America, and we go over a number of questions, such as what challenges do incarcerated individuals face? How much do phone calls cost the families of incarcerated individuals? How did Frederick come up with Pigeonly while being incarcerated? And much more. Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. Frederick, can you share a little bit about the background? I grew up in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. After high school, um, I went to the, to the military. I was in the, in the Air Force for two years before I got out early uh, with honorable discharge. And my job in the Air Force was um, electrician on the F-16 aircraft. So I always, technical things- F-16 aircraft? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, was, isn't yeah, it's that- a little, it's a little, a little, a little known fact that people don't know about me. <laughs> wow, I, we got to put up a picture so people can see what an S-16 <laughs> aircraft is. When I see it, a picture- it a little that, bit of sophistication to it. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of sophistication. So, um, you know, when I went to the Air Force, I ended up at Nellis Air Force Base, that's also in Las Vegas. And that was my first duty station. So after tech school and training and all that stuff, they assigned me to your first station and mine just so happened to be Las Vegas. So I was doing my job and you know, I met a friend. That's actually where I met my co-founder, Alfonso. We met there because his job was avionics. So avionics and like electrical jobs, they kind of overlap a lot. So that's how we met. While I was in the Air Force, I was always wanting to be in business. So I was just trying stuff and I was just mm-hmm. trying my hand at different business ventures while I was in the military at the same time. And then my, my boys is just like really close. You know, they was coming out to Vegas, like, yo, why y'all come out to Vegas so much? And they was like, well, this is what we're doing. You know, we're, we're getting weed over here and then we're driving it back or, or, or we're getting it back to Florida. And I was like, well, we can make that a lot more efficient. Just my mind always just seeing the problems. And <laughs> you know, like, the operations, <laughs> the distribution. Yeah, yeah. We can make this a lot better. You know, this is only 10, 15 times at a time. That's, that's, that's too much work. And that takes too much time. How do we move 300 at a time? And that and one thing led to another. And before I knew it, um, I had organized a whole logistics to move marijuana from Mexico to Tucson, Arizona, from Tucson to Vegas, from Vegas to all different parts of Florida. Went from just a handful of pounds to three, four, 500 pounds at a time um, to the point where it just was, it was a lot. So, and then that went on for a few years. Um, for most of my early 20s, at least for minimum four years. 
And then I was indicted when I was 23 because it got so big so fast that, you know, caught the federal government's attention. They even had a whole task force for us. They called it Cannabis Express. You know, I was a kid at the time. And, you know, think back, I wasn't even But yeah, so after that, um, when I was indicted, I didn't think, I didn't think much of it. Um, I thought it was just weed, not a big deal. But the judge didn't think so. So she, she uh, sentenced me to almost uh, close to five years in federal prison. Um, I went to prison when I was 23. And then I was released when I was uh, 28, going on 29. So I spent wow. a good part of my, my you 20s. Did your full, 20s you did yeah, the full five, five years. Don't they? Well, see, in, uh-huh. Nah, in federal prison, federal prison, they don't have the concept of like, time and a half and good time like the federal prison you do 85 percent of your time i think something like that so wow. it's a very small amount of time that you get it's not like states where some states you do 60 percent or you know, and, some states you do 50 percent it's not and like federal that. versus state is just a whole nother level in terms of the other individuals that are there with you and the criminal yeah, offenses yeah. like it's a lot worse yeah exactly well, I, it depends. So, you know, in federal, you have everyone from, you know, the guy who did some heinous crime from state to state to drug. A lot of drug offenses turn federal. A lot of white collar offenses turn federal because it involves, you know, the banking system or there was a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs. There was a lot of attorneys, a lot of politicians. So you have you have the game. Wow, you, have you the do see that, them. That wrote. I yeah, always yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. I read the story and by the time I'm done reading the story, they're already out of prison, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot. There's a, there's a, it, it runs the gamut of what, what you see when you're there. Um, you're seeing people from all over the United States all, you know, throughout the system. So, and um, where was, uh, what prison was this? What federal? So I did time in eight different facilities. So I bounced around quite a bit. And um, that's Is because that I started when I... Yeah, super common. And mainly in, in federal prison, why I bounce around so much is because I came in so young. So when you come in young, um, it automatically puts you at a high risk or high security risk. So I started out at a medium. And then after I did some time in the medium, then they brought me down to a low. And then after a low, they brought me down to the camp. And then I finished my time off at a camp. So what does Pigeon Lee do? And how does it help families trying to communicate? How did you get started with Pigeon League? Sure. So I'll start with what Pigeon League is. So what Pigeon League is, is a platform that makes it easy for people to search, find, and communicate with an incarcerated loved one. And they can do so using one or all seven of our consumer-facing products. Our products fit into three categories. The first one is our voice over IP service, which is phone calls. It allows people to receive low-cost prison phone calls. When I say low-cost, it cuts the cost of the prison phone call by as much as 80%. In some places, it can cost as much as a dollar a minute, so it's $15 for a 15-minute phone call, so it can get very, very expensive very quickly. And then the second category is financial services, and this product basically allows people to send money as easy as Square or Cash App to someone who's incarcerated. And um, the final would be our postal mail services product, which basically allows a person to send printed green cards, postcards, letters, photos, et cetera, from any cell phone, tablet, computer. Then it will actually get tangible four by six prints or your actual letter or the cards or whatever in the mail um, in roughly around three days usually. And how we got started, it was basically just out of my personal experience. I mean, I just saw that there was this huge population of people that no one's paying attention to. 
and they all had the same problem. It was very difficult and expensive for them to stay connected and communicate. And I knew that no one was really building a solution for this demographic. And then when I started doing the numbers and I realized, okay, well, you, know, you have, you know, 2.3 million people that are currently incarcerated. You have each person is connected to five to seven people on the outside. So there's roughly 16 to 17 million people who have this problem that no one is really even paying attention to. So once I was released, you know, that's where, where I started. The first thing I started doing was building with Mount Pigeon. And I built the first version or at least had the first version built before I even got out the halfway house. So I was really focused and had a sense of urgency in what I was doing to kind of the very early versions. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't very pretty. It wasn't, it didn't, it had bugs and software bugs and it wasn't perfect, but it worked. And it allowed people to upload a photo and send a photo and did that one thing very well. And then from there, we just kind of expanded and grew, you know, our offerings and what we do. I'm guessing while you're making these calls, you realize how expensive it is. And then mm -hmm. you actually started de developing some of it while you were still in? Yes. One thing I used to do to pass the time is I would just do these mental exercises of running through different business ideas that I thought were cool and interesting through my mind. So I'll go through every single step of the process, everything from, you know, hiring employees to trying to do fundraising, to pitching, mm -hmm. to designing what the website would look like. So by the time I did it in real life, I had been through this scenario in my head so many times for so long that it almost felt like I had done it already, even though I had no background in technology. I've never done anything in that space before. I didn't have any resources starting out. I was literally in the federal halfway house at the time. didn't have a place to live. It was really um, one of those things where I had went through it so, so many times in my, in my mind, just thinking through it, that by the time I actually did it in real life, it felt like, oh, yeah, yeah I did this before. Right? So it, it, it wasn't foreign to me. How much does it cost an inmate before Pigeon Lee? making a call from prison. Why is this so, like this? Absolutely. So basically, um, I'll give you the background of the industry and why, why, how it's set up. So right now, the way the industry is set up and the way it's always been set up is that facilities, prison facilities, typically outsource a lot of the functions of the jail or, or prison to third-party vendors. And the way that the third-party vendors is awarded contracts is based on which vendor promises the facility or the prison the highest kickback. So if vendor A goes on and says, hey, you know, we'll provide your phone services for you and we'll pay you $100,000 a year. And then vendor B says, we'll provide phone service for you and we'll pay you $150,000 a year. The person that gets the contract is the one that promises basically $150,000 a year. But that comes at a cost because that $150,000, that's passed on to the consumer, not the inmate. The inmate doesn't pay for the phone calls. The family members are paying for the phone calls. So that cost, $150,000 plus whatever cost, is passed on to the consumer. Um, and then when the consumer receives a phone call from you know, their loved one in jail, they're bearing that fee. So that's the fundamental reason why these calls are as expensive as they are. It's just because it's a reverse incentive. Typically, when you go places, it's the cheapest vendor that wins to, and because they have to offer the, the consumer has choices. But in prison, you don't have choices what vendor you can use. You, don't, you can't choose you know, Verizon or AT&T, you're stuck. Right. Whatever mm -hmm. vendor is at that, that facility, that's the vendor that you have to use. So in an example of federal prison, you can speak usually up, up to 300 minutes um, a month. And for those 300 minutes, the cost um, to communicate is right around $70, $70, and at 23 cents a minute. 
And um, with our service, those same 300 minutes only cost $15 for the month, which is the cheapest it can be. Um, So typically there's, yeah, so it's a big difference. So there's typically different rates, whether you're calling, whether inmates calling a long distance number or a local number. And what our system does is it always makes sure that the inmate can reach his family member calling the lowest number. Sometimes the long distance one is more expensive. Sometimes the long distance one is cheaper. So it literally varies. There's no set way and it varies from place to place. Who are the players? Is it just a few players that are providing the ability for people to make these calls or it's pretty fragmented? No, it's only a handful. There's a handful. There might be three, maybe four. It's not a lot. Who, who, are, who are the companies that are out there? So you have companies like Global Telling. You have companies like Liberty. You have companies like Securus. Those are the big three. You have IC wow. Solutions. They're private billion-dollar organizations. How is it that you're able to provide such a cost-effective way for people to be able to communicate? How does that even work? Our software knows where the inmate is, so we know what type of, and we also know the rate at that facility. So what we'll do is we'll give mom the lowest cost number to be reached on. So when the inmate calls home, instead of calling his mom's number direct, he'll call the pigeon number instead, and then we'll connect the call to mom's existing cell phone or landline. So it's very similar to a Google Voice or a Skype mm-hmm. in that regard, but we're routing the call the cheapest way possible so that whatever the rates are at a facility, there may be three rates or two rates, we'll route the call the cheapest of the two or the cheapest of the three. Wow. So let's say I'm calling my mom. What does she have to do in, in her end of, of the experience? What does that actually look like? Yeah. So all mom does is she'll go on our website. She'll put in John Smith. Um, one of the key things that we built is that we have an inmate locator that helps people locate where their loved one is. She'll put John Smith in. Our system will help her find John. Um, once she adds John to her contact list, she can just request the telephone number and we'll give her a number. And then she can say, okay, John, from now on, here's the number you can call me on. Is there a limit for the amount of calls that inmates can make from prison or no? It varies. So there's some facilities that allow you, like in, in a lot of places, county jails will allow you to talk as much as you want, not at the same time or not in one call. So most facilities will limit your call to 15 to 30 minutes just so that other people can have opportunity to use the phone but they don't have a global cap on the amount of minutes. But other facilities do. There's some facilities and prisons, I should say, state prisons that have a cap. You know, you only can speak 300 minutes a month or 500 minutes a month. In federal prisons, you can only speak 300 minutes a month. So there's no set rules when it comes to incarceration and corrections at all. It all varies. What is some of the impact that you've already seen implementing this? Yeah, so one thing that we're real proud of is we track the amount of dollars that we've saved consumers. So, so far, we've saved consumers a little over $10 million in our existence. How many uh, inmates have been using the system? We've connected over 100,000 inmates with people on the outside. As far as people who have signed up our service, well over half a million at this point. We're a team of 35 full-time employees based in Las Vegas. We've raised a little over $6 million in venture capital since our existence from day one to today. And we've just been, you know, we've really been excited and growing and, and just really trying to design and build technology that can reduce the destructive impact that over-incarceration or unreformed criminal justice has on communities. You'd mentioned that uh, there's three services. One is making the calls. You're also including photos in there. So how does that actually work? These calls that are being made, I always... Picture it as a very old school phone 
that the image yes, has access right. to. And so how, how does that work with photos? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So he, there's, a, there's usually a phone bank. There's like a room with a whole bunch of pay phones or just they look like pay phones. And you can, if it's a phone open, you can use it. That's, that's, that's typically how it's set up pretty much everywhere. With photos, the customer, our family, the family members, which is always the customer. So the inmate's never our customer. It's always the family member. Right. The family member can go on our website. They can upload the photos that they want to send. They can hit the send button. And then those photos are then printed in our fulfillment center and shipped. And then in the inmate will get the photos in his hand through the mail, you know, three to five days later. Mm. And you mentioned financial service. So being able to send mm-hmm. money, can you highlight a little bit on that? Yeah, because we already know who all the same people who are talking to the same inmate, we already know who are the people that are sending photos or letters to the same inmate. We said, what if we allowed them all ten small amounts of money, $10, $20, whatever they could afford, and then we can aggregate it all together and then make one payment out to the inmate. Usually it's pretty expensive to send money in prison, dominated by a handful of companies as well, just like the phone industry. If you want to send 10 bucks, it can cost you three, four bucks if you send $10. So it's cost prohibitive. So close to 40% of what you send, that's what it could yeah, cost. Yeah, I mean, it's for that, small, for that small amount. And it gets high, it, gets, it, it, it varies. So, you know, the minimum in most places is, you know, four bucks, usually three ninety five, something like that, just in any amount, right? So what most people do, and I've seen costs from, you know, four bucks, three ninety five on the low end and as high as eight dollars on the high end. So it varies. So what we saw is well, if we was able to aggregate that together and you have four people that all want to send ten bucks, where they each would have had to pay four bucks separately, they would have paid sixteen dollars to send that, we could then have them all send ten dollars and we can make one payment of forty, but we can spread the fee amongst four people. So each person's only paying a dollar fee. It allows people to send small amounts of money to be more supportive of their loved one without bearing the cost, the full cost of it. So, so they it, send it you the money. They each, let's say there's five family members that at different time frames send you money. And this could be one day, five days, a month later, they send you money, you collect that money. How do you organize in terms of when to to be able to send that one transfer and when you know how many people do it's decide to it. It's on a schedule just like how your payroll check may be on the schedule. So people can pay in whenever they want and they know on this date, this is whatever is here, it's going to be paid out to this person. So it, it just puts on the schedule, make it really simple on the, on the inmate side. It allows his, his financial support to be a little bit more predictable. Um, it allows more people to contribute who may not afford to send 100 bucks or 50 bucks or more money because of the fees are so high. And it simplifies and makes it really easy for people to do at the convenience right from their phone with a few clicks versus jumping through a lot of hoops. It's really around convenience and simplifying the process. And a lot of our products, that's what we really focus on doing. When you send money to a loved one that's in jail, how do they re- they receive it? In an envelope or what, what, what does, you know, like how does that actually yeah, great, even great work? And, and if, yeah, so. And then what do they do with that, too? I mean, I guess it helps them get by within prison. How does that even work? Yeah, you have some really good questions. So basically, prison is a cashless environment. There is no cash. You don't have a debit card. You don't have any of that. So basically what um, institutions have is they have inmate accounts. So any funds that you receive from the outside world gets deposited into accounts that you cannot touch. What's in this account is basically what only thing you can do with this account. This account is linked to all the services that's provided at the institution. 
So for phone calls or for commissary, if you want to buy toiletries, if you want to buy a candy bar or ramen noodles or whatever, you can use this account, the funds from this account to make those purchases. If you want to buy stamps to be able to send letters home, that's, you have to go on a commissary to do that. When you did your time and you got out, you met up with, mm-hmm. your, with your friend from uh, the Air Force uh, and you told him about your idea or what, what happened afterwards? Yeah, we had, we had tried to stay in touch the best way we could. It was really difficult throughout my time there. But then when I got out, I told him about the idea and I was like, hey, you know, we should do this. This is going to work. It's going to be a hit. People are going to love it. And he believed in it. And, and we was already, we was already cool. We was already friends. And we, we went out there and we started, you know, putting it together. And, you know, it came together bit by bit. That's incredible. You went through New Me Accelerator. You raised a seed yeah. round of, of uh, close to one million or a million. And yep. did, how, how was this experience of talking to what I already know, because I've experienced it, being uh, just a room of 99% white male uh, and you have to try to share with them, you know, wh- what your idea is and, and what the problem is. How, how did that go about? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I quickly learned that I had to be comfortable with who I was and my domain experiences. That made me a domain expert. So it was because of what I went through, because of my experience that I was an expert and I was the best person to solve this problem. And what I would do is, I would try to rule out someone that wasn't going to be supportive of what I was doing as fast as I possibly could. Because the last thing I want to do, back to my sense of urgency comment earlier, is waste any more time than I needed to on someone who didn't get it or someone who didn't believe or someone who didn't care about the problem that I was solving. So as much as they were trying to evaluate me, I was trying to evaluate them even faster because I didn't want to waste an extra two minutes talking to you if I knew you wasn't going to be on board. I was trying to do that as quickly as I could because fundraising is extremely time-consuming oh, and it takes your hour of growing and building the business and, and it just can be very draining. So I was trying to get to that process as quickly as I could and I try to use every meeting as a way to learn because even if someone says, you know, eh, no, I'm a pass, I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling you, I don't like your background, whatever the reason is, you know, you can't be afraid to ask for that feedback because it allows you to understand and tailor your offering and tailor your pitch, tailor your materials. And then each time was a learning experience for me. And it's a numbers game. You know, you have to talk to, you know, 20, 30 people to get one, two yeses. Like that's just a, that's just a, that's just a thing, right? So you have to be okay with that. You have to have realistic expectations going into it. And particularly if you're a minority founder, you know, you have to understand that, you know, you don't match the pattern that they're typically investing in, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't match the pattern, you have to play that up. So the same thing that you will look at as something to be a disadvantage, that's the same thing that's going to be your biggest asset. It's because I don't match your pattern. That's why you should invest in me even more because I understand a problem. I understand the demographic. I understand something that that you guys don't understand. So I'm going to be able to do something that no one that you're going to be in that was going to be able to do. So I think that's just really important, just, you know, for entrepreneurs and founders, for that, you, you know, going through that process to kind of just shift your mindset because you're not asking for a handout, you're asking for investment. It's a very, it's a very big difference than asking for a donation. And you're, you're giving someone the opportunity to be a part of something that you're building that's going to make an impact in the world, you know, in some way, shape or form. And if they don't want to be a part of it, then there's other people that will. So, you know, just keep it moving. 
do you hire teammates that also have experience it being in prison? Yeah, for sure. It's about half. Oh my god! Wow. So half yeah. half your team are individuals that have gone through it and know what it what it is, what it feels like, and are focused on building a product that makes it better for those families. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Are there? What's your your vision? What's your dream with this with this organization? Where do you want to take this? Yeah, I think for me, my my long term goal is really to open up the black box that is our criminal justice system. So right now, it's a very fragmented place that there's not a lot of information, there's not a lot of data. People don't understand. It's not transparent. Um, I'm really trying to change a lot of that, you know, starting with the data that we collect that allows people to even find their loved ones, but it's going to go on to how do we measure how effective a law is if you can't see the effect that it's having? How do you measure if bail is being set fairly? First of all, in most cases, you don't need bail. Bail should be abolished. But in places where you do have bail, how do you know that this bail is being given in an unbiased, fair way from people in the same county that look different, one black, one white, and they get two different bail amounts purely based off of race? Wow. You can't see in this data because this data is is buried. And my goal is to really open this black box and make everything transparent so that we can have a data-driven, common-sense criminal justice system. I think fundamentally that's going to bring about a lot of reform that people are talking about. And, you know, I'm starting with what can I change right now? You know, this is, the, it's a big issue. It has a lot of tentacles and there's a lot of areas that need fixing. Um, so we're starting with something that we can address right now. Right now we can lower the recidivism rate or the rate of good people go back to prison by keeping them in touch because research already shows that just communication alone can impact the rate at which someone goes to jail. That and education are two most important factors that of how quickly someone returns back to prison. So that's how I look at things. There's some things that are more of a long, um, your long game or something, the short game. So on the short game is communication, keeping you in touch, keeping people out from returning. And then on the long game is Bringing that, bringing that transparency through data um, and exposing all the dark corners within the criminal justice system that no one really sees mm. that really allow it to operate and exist the way that it exists today. What is your advice or do you have advice to other entrepreneurs who feel the odds are against them? I mean, uh, accept and be okay with the odds being against you like they are. And you have to be okay with that because... You know, being an entrepreneur and growing and building a business, you have to go against the grain. You have to be trying to do and create something that someone else either tried and failed or someone else couldn't do or someone else is not doing good enough. Like if, you know, or else the idea wouldn't be there or the opportunity wouldn't be there. And if this was something that you can just, that was simple, then hate to use the cliche, but if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And it takes a, it takes a person that is, dedicated to solving a real problem and wanting to address and be, and be that change that they want to see to tackle it. And um, if you're not going to be dedicated, then it's not for you. And if you're not going to want to stick with it when it sucks and you're not willing to make the level of sacrifices that's needed, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to risk the comfort of a check on the 1st and the 15th? Do I really want to take this leap? That's, that's a real question people need to ask themselves. Just know what you're signing up for. And once you go, go.
Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciated. Be sure to visit gettingtherepodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world-pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba.